I have heard, I'm going to launch straight in. Mike's looking at me like, <laughs> they just saw it. That's what I have to deal with when I'm trying to preach sometimes. Um, <laughs> it's like a child. Okay. I have, what was I going to say? I've heard Mike say more times, can I just say at the start, by the way, before I begin with this, my, this is really, I'm just trying to share something that I feel like I've been discovering about Jesus. And my, my big frustration with it is I'm struggling to find language to articulate um, how good he is, how compassionate he is, how caring he is, which is really all I want to remind us of. Um, so I'm going to do my best. That's where we're going to go. But that's been my big frustration in this. And I've heard Mike say so many times over the years that Christianity is, is not about religion, it's about relationship. Bef, be, you know, before it's about anything else, uh, the gathering for church services or what we do with our time or what we do with our bodies or how we spend our money, before it's about any of that, it's about a person. It's about knowing a person, um, understanding that we are known by him and loved by him and loving him in return. It's about Jesus and relationship with him. And, and all relationships, um, we know this, they, they're dynamic, they're not static, they don't just sit there, they, they're this um, evolving, maturing, moving thing. In, in, in the same way that when a couple make their wedding vows and they say, yes, that's not the end, that's not the, they've reached the climax of the relationship, they're just beginning that relationship, really. That's just the firing gun at the start of the race and, and the adventure begins and we know that it's an adventure where as they say yes and enter the relationship, they're going to discover all these new things about each other, some of which are going to be incredibly annoying. Um, but they, it's, a, it's an adventure of discovery in relationship. When we say yes to following Jesus, that's, that's on one level the end of something, but really is the beginning of an adventure that it's not an overstatement to say goes on for eternity, that it's a relationship that there'll always be new things to discover about who he is. Um, and in the same way, we know this with our, our great friends. You know, sometimes it's not just about discovering something new, but it's just about um, just, re just realizing the same thing, but in a deeper way. So Mike and I have been friends since I was 18 years old. And if you'd asked me when I was 18, what does Mike love? I would have, I would have said the classic, he loves food. And I, I would have meant it because I knew he did. Well, here we are 17 years later. You asked me, what does Mike love? I'll tell you the same thing, but now I just get it on a whole nother level. If you give him an olive, it's like he's died and gone to heaven. If, you, um, if he's got a piece of lamb, you're probably best just leaving him in a room by himself because there's a moment there between Mike and the lamb that you don't want to interrupt. He, he loves food. I get that truth about him and I got it when I was 18, but now I just get it on a deeper level. If Christianity is about relationship with Jesus, this is what we're going to find as we do the journey. And that's never going to stop, ever. Doesn't matter how long we've been following him. There'll be things about him that we'll say to each other, I've never seen that. And there will be things that we've always known since we first said yes to him that we will discover afresh in a deeper way. And I knew he was good uh, when I was 16 and I said yes to following him. But I have, in the last 10, 10 months to a year, just realized in a, in a new way, in a deeper way, just how truly good he is. Um, one of the things that I always find helpful to remember as well, 
and I have to process it quite a lot because I, I forget it all the time, is that when we're getting to know Jesus, when we're understanding what makes Jesus tick, we are, in fact, getting to know God at his, at his very heart, at his very core, who God is. As the restrictions start to ease, I think probably one of the things that most of us will enjoy doing is not spending quite so much time on Zoom. The only downside of that is that we will have less moments of people making fools of themselves on Zoom. And I know most of you will have seen it, but it's funny enough to make me watch, you know, make you watch it again. I don't know if you saw that, that thing that was doing the rounds about three weeks ago, where there was a lawyer who appeared in a courtroom, a virtual courtroom, uh, somewhere in America, and he accidentally had his cat filter on his Zoom. I'm gonna show you the clip. I just want you to note in the clip, the panicked eyes of the cat as they look around the, the place trying to find the button that switches the Zoom filter off. But here it is, have a look. Mr. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to uh, uh, take, take We're trying to, we're tr can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. That's, I'm here live. It's not, I'm not a cat. I can, I can see that. <laughs> I've seen this. It still cracks me up the line, I'm not a cat. <laughs> as, as if he needs to stay, as if he needs to make it clear he's not a talking cat. Um, that will be one of the quotes of 2021, undoubtedly, in, in, when the history books are written. But, but we, can, we can think, okay, maybe we don't use this language, but we can somehow, in, in terms of a practical approach to God, think that Jesus is like some filter that, um, that is there in the world and that behind Jesus, there is some other God vaguely somewhere. And Jesus reveals a little bit of who God is, but he's, he's not the full picture. And absolutely, it is true that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there is a mystery to that. But what is also true is what, what we're told in the book of Hebrews, chapter one, verse three, where we are told that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is he is the exact nature of God. This isn't just a part, this isn't a spin. It's not a bit of propaganda. It's not one aspect of who God is when we meet God in Jesus. We're meeting the whole of who God is. So in Colossians, it says of Jesus, Colossians chapter one, verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the God who is invisible, made visible. So when we look at the face of Jesus and when we discern the heart of Jesus, when we understand what is at the core of Jesus, we are looking right into the core of God himself. Jesus is God. What makes him tick? What drives him? Um, as, as I've looked at the Gospels afresh, one of the things that's become so clear is his compassion and his love and his caring. And this matters so much to know him as he really is. Because when we really know Jesus as he is, what that means is we approach him just with peace and with confidence. Not half-heartedly and, and feeling ashamed or feeling guilty, but just confident knowing his love for us, his mercy for us. 
When we know him as he is, we have peace about the future because we know his faithfulness and we understand his power. When we know him as he is, we don't second guess whether we've been forgiven because we know that's not what he's like, that he forgives all who come to him. So this is one of the most practical things. If not, I would say the most practical thing any of us who follow him do is just get to know him. And uh, I just want to go through just a few scriptures that have really spoken to me. So I'm not, I'm not going to just focus on one passage. I'm going to go through just a, uh, a little list, if you will, of scriptures that just, for me, have captured me again about his heart. Um, at the start of Jesus's ministry, Luke chapter 4, he gets up in a synagogue in Nazareth and he is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he reads, he picks a particular place on the scroll intentionally from Isaiah 61 and he reads this. And this is really his manifesto. It's his equivalent of an inauguration speech. This is what I'm here for. And I'll read it to you. It says, um, Luke chapter 4, verse 17. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So that's his mission, to proclaim good news to the poor, to, to, to um, bind up the brokenhearted, to set the prisoners free, to recover your sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, um, to proclaim the year of jubilee, the year of God's favour, his grace, his mercy kind of coming. That's his mission, but it's not just his mission. It is also his heart. It is the very thing that he is eager to do. Because it's possible to do something that's an, a caring action. It's possible to do something that is um, impressively kind of like transformative in the world and, not, and still not have a heart that desires to do that. You can make yourself do things that are caring. Even if in your heart, you're reluctant to do it. Even if in your heart, you're unwilling to do it. You can grit your teeth and decide, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. That's not what Jesus did. This is his mission, it is also his heart. To use Mike as an example again, if I said, uh, you know, we all know with the food, he could get up and say, I'm going to cook Greek food for you all and I'm going to eat a load of Greek food for you too. That's him stating what he's going to do, but we know him well enough to know that is the very thing that he desires to do above all things as well. That is his eager longing to do this. Same with Jesus. He stands up and says, I'm here to set the oppressed free. I'm here to, to bring sight to the blind. I'm here to proclaim the favour of the Lord. And that wasn't just what he was here to do. That's what he desired to do. And there are so many scriptures that give us this insight into his, his instinctive nature towards this. So one would be, I'm just going to go through a few examples. Matthew chapter 8, uh, a leper comes to Jesus and he says to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. And straight away, immediately, we're told, Jesus stretches out his hand. He touches him, this person that in that society, everyone would have run in the opposite direction from. He touches him and he says these words to him, I am willing, be clean. He doesn't just say, be clean. He says, I am willing willing to do this and that word for willing in the Greek 
is the word for desire. So the leper says to him, if it's your desire, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds without even blinking, without even thinking, it seems to me. He just says, it is my desire. It is my deepest desire that that which binds you, you are set free from. Um, there's another moment where some friends, this is in Matthew chapter 9, they bring their, they bring their paralysed friend to Jesus and they can't get into the house where he is so they dig a hole in the roof and they lower the guy down on a mat and Jesus just obviously sees this happening in front of him. They lower this guy down right there at the feet of Jesus. Jesus doesn't even ask what they want. He doesn't let them explain the situation before they ask him anything. He just says to, to the man, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. The words, it's like they pour out of, his, out of his mouth. He can't contain them. He just wants to reassure this man and to tell him of the, the, the forgiveness, the goodness of God. And then, of course, he heals him as well. Um, another moment that really spoke to me the other day when I was reading it in Mark um, is when Jesus and his disciples, they're tired, they're exhausted. They've been doing loads of busy ministry. We're told in the Bible that they didn't have time to eat even. And so Jesus says to them, look, let's get in the boat and let's go off to a quiet place and get some rest. So they get in the boat, they start to cross Lake Galilee, but word spreads about where they're going to. And so while they're kind of sailing the boat across the lake, a crowd of people run around the side of the lake. And so by the time they actually arrive, there's a crowd of thousands of people waiting for them on the other side of the lake. They're going there for a break. They're going there for a little holiday. And this crowd of people have turned up. I know how I would respond in a situation like that. Can you imagine? If finally, after just being exhausted with the last year or so, you get to go away on a little break and then you turn up and there's a crowd of thousands of your colleagues there waiting for you at the holiday destination saying, why have you not responded to my emails? Um, if I saw that when I landed, my instinct would be get back in the boat and go back to the other side of the lake. It would be, please, please just leave me alone. I'm exhausted. I need a rest. His response is this. Mark Chapter 6, verse 34. When he gets to the place, he'd gone for a break and he sees a sea of need in front of him. We see this. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. His instinct, his first response, compassion. And that theme of compassion right there at the heart of Jesus, at the heart of God, just comes in wave after wave after wave when we read the Gospels. Um, it's his compassion that drives him to heal the sick. It's his compassion that drives him to feed the hungry, the feeding of the 5,000. It's his compassion, as we've just seen in that moment, that leads him to teach, to proclaim good news to the poor. Um, there are only two places in the Gospels where Jesus is recorded as crying. In both of those instances, he's not crying for himself, which tends to be what all of my tears are about. He's crying for other people. One of them is when he, he's at the, he sees the, the funeral of Lazarus and he witnesses the grief that his death has caused. The other is when he, he's in front of Jerusalem and he just understands the suffering that's coming to the city and he just cries, he weeps in that moment. What, what, what causes a response in Jesus is the suffering of others. 
and the struggle of others. There's one moment where he approaches a town and a, a widow is burying her only son. And he says in Luke chapter 7, verse 13, we're told, and he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And this word compassion in the Greek, it literally means a tearing of the bowels, like the guts. This isn't a, um, a mild feeling. This is, this is a wrenching deep inside of Jesus and of God, a wrenching deep inside of who he is that causes him to respond. It isn't just what he does. It's the state of his heart. And... Um, and the mistake that I've made for years, and I still catch myself doing it regularly, is that I, my, my natural instincts about Jesus, so often they're wrong. Because when I come into relationship with him, and we all do this, we bring the baggage uh, of our past and we bring our own sort of ways of operating. And we can tend to think that he's like us. We, 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 we think he's maybe a, a nicer version of us, but we can basically put ourselves on a, some kind of sliding scale and think he's just a bit nicer than we are. He's a bit further down the tracks, but he's not like us. Look at the way that we operate. And maybe this is just me, but I'm, I don't think it is. You know, we're attracted to people who seem to have it all sorted. We're, we're, we flock to, and we do it on social media and we do it in life, people who are wealthy, people who are beautiful, people who are famous, people who are successful at something. We're drawn to people like that. And instinctively also, we tend to be, and again, this is not all of us, and I don't want to put this onto you, but if it's not true, but we can tend to be repulsed by the opposite of those things. People who have made a mess of their lives. People who are struggling. And sometimes the number one person on that list that we have is ourselves. We can be repulsed by what we see in ourselves, but we have a list of other people as well that we shy away from when the need is too great or it just seems like they're a lost cause and there's no hope. And, and we're attracted to one group and we, we, we run away from the others. And much of our society works like that. And so perhaps we can be forgiven for bringing those lenses into our understanding of Jesus. And we can think he's like that, that he would be drawn to the people who've got it sorted and he would be reluctantly approaching, if at all, those who haven't. And that's, we see here in the scripture, this is why the Bible is so important for showing us what he's actually like, the opposite of that. The people that he runs towards are the people who are struggling. The people he seems to have the greatest desire to help and his desire to help every single person but it seems to me to be those who have the greatest need and there is no one who comes to Jesus who has to meet some qualification to receive help from him other than this this is the qualification to receive help from Jesus to want it this is the qualification to receive an embrace from Jesus to want it The people that he is here to help are the people who are struggling. And it's not just that that is something he's doing because he's trying to be good. It's, it's something he's doing because it burns in him. It's something he's eager to do. And just as Jesus did that 2,000 years ago when he was wandering around Israel, he's doing it today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, tomorrow. 
he will be the same. This will always be what he's like. And so here's the implications for us. When we're struggling, and I know lots of us are, um, and I have been in different ways uh, the last few weeks, when we're struggling, we can come to him and we will find him to be consistently caring. We will find him, and this is what staggers me, it will be a joy to him to help us and to bless us. Because this is his nature. In the same way that with Mike, you know what? When he cooks his food, it's the biggest joy in the world to see people enjoy that. And wouldn't that be true for you? If, if there was someone you really wanted to help, let's say there was a part of the world where you saw people were, were, were starving and you were so moved by that that you, you sold your house and you, you, you took the money and you, you went to that place and you took all the, all the aid you could there. And then the people there were suspicious of you and they, they, were, they were really sort of cautious. They didn't want to come near, but then one of them came and asked for help. Would it not to you, if you had done that in that moment, be such a joy to you to be able to help them, to be able to bless them? Wouldn't it something ignite in you in that moment and say, yes, that's the very reason that I've come. That's the very reason that I'm here. What staggers me when I approach Jesus is not only does he help me, but the, the desire that he has to help me, the joy that he feels in helping me is greater than my own joy in receiving his help. That's how good he is. That's how merciful he is. And just to finish, because uh, we're almost out of time, just to finish to say, uh, one of the things that I've just been pondering is, yeah, but how? How does he embrace me today? How does he help me in my struggle? With the leper, he put out a hand and touched his shoulder. With the blind people, he touched their eyes. Uh, with others, he would sit there and teach them. He would feed them. But, but how is that for us? We're not there. He can't embrace us in the same way. And Jesus, just before he, he, he goes to the cross, he sits with his disciples at the final meal and he addresses this. And he says to them, I'm going back to the Father, but we are going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the spirit elsewhere in scripture is called the spirit of Christ. In Romans chapter five, it talks about how the Holy Spirit is the love of God. The very love of God that walks around with flesh on in the person of Jesus. That love, the love of God is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's almost impossible to believe this, but it's absolutely true. We have something even better than that leper or the crowd on the shore of Lake Galilee had because we don't just have Jesus touch us for a moment, but we have his promise and we live the reality that his presence lives in us forever. Sometimes we don't feel that and we live on the promise of it, the scriptural concrete guarantee but other times we can come to him and say, Lord, I need to meet with you. I need to encounter you. We can ask, we can seek, and we can knock. And when we do that, and when we desire him, which I know we do, when we desire him, he will embrace us again with his spirit, the comforter, the helper, the one who guides us into truth and shows us again who Jesus is, the very radiance of God. He will embrace us with the Spirit, and that's an embrace of our spirits that is far deeper and far more enduring 
than even the best physical embrace. It's his heart to do this. What's Jesus like? It's so important that we can answer that question accurately. And what we see in the scripture, in his heart, he is caring, he is kind, and he is loving.